start now. This past Sunday, I went to San Francisco and had the privilege to attend my niece's eight-year-old birthday party, which was quite a different experience from being here. (laughs) We all went downtown on the BART with a bunch of eight-year-olds. It was pretty wild. Then we came back and had cake and ice cream, and I really felt like I had been run over by the time I got back here, I have to say. (laughs) But there was a point during the party that I kind of want to share with you guys, where the girls uh, at the party all vanished into a little room, and they were being very, very quiet while the boys were hitting each other over the head with balloons and fighting (laughs) harmlessly. But after a while, the quiet kind of started to become palpable, and a note was sent out under the door to the boys saying, don't bother us, we're meditating. (laughs) (laughs) This has nothing to do with the theme of the talk, it's just funny. Um, (laughs) Which was, of course, a total instigation to the boys. It was a summons. But the boys were not allowed in that room, so they sat out in the hall and they started meditating themselves. But their meditation consisted of a chanting, which was kind of went like this. Um, ba-dum, 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 um, um, ba-dum, ba-dum, (laughs) ba-dum. So there were two different schools of meditation (laughs) going on. They also changed their chant a few times. Anyway, just I thought you would enjoy that um, story. Another thing that happened at that party was when uh, one of the moms came to pick up her son. She came with a little dog, a young one-year-old dog. And my sister has this uh, ceramic figurine of a bull with horns that uh, has been in our house since we were children. And it was on the floor. It's actually it's about this tall. It's kind of a rather large fig- figurine. It's maybe a foot tall, and the horns stick up. And this dog got really agitated by this um, thing, thinking of it as a threatening creature. <laughs> so barking, barking at this thing, and you know, and hiding behind the woman who was its owner, and um, perceiving it as an animated, threatening um, thing. So we did various things to make it feel better, like we lay it down on its side and it was willing to get a little closer to it. And then we had it go hide behind the television and come back out and stuff. And slowly it got to be able to stop barking, but still didn't want to go up and sniff this thing. Um, So it was seeing something in that figurine that didn't exist. And this is a little bit um, one of the things that the Buddha was pointing to, that we see um, things in the stream of existence or the stream of our experience that uh, are not really there, such as a uh, real self. Um, But actually, I don't want to address that quite yet because that question is really intense. But shall we just say that um, sensing the self as being independent, separate, um, eternal, 
or somehow kind of privileged out of the flow of experience is not a real thing, but we all seem to carry that assumption. Our life is so much more open-ended than our views about it. And the teaching here is to let ourselves relax into the stream of experience and to find ease and peace and freedom within this very world of conditions and change. The Buddha said, compared it to a lotus, uh, like a lotus living in this world, um, where the water drops fall off the petals. And John touched on this a little bit last night, um, talking about opening beyond our thinking mind, beyond our clinging and relaxing into things as they are, kind of an adventure. Um, and he also spoke a little bit about discerning elements within experience and uh, taking things apart a little bit. But I want to uh, say that we've all begun to deepen in our immersion in, pra- our immersion in practice through mindfulness here and a little bit more calm, a little bit more discernment. The mindfulness is more wieldy and more speedy. So it's possible that we can use the intelligence of our noticing mind to discern a little bit more within our experience. And I wrote this talk based on our understanding as teachers of the flow of the retreat. Um, This really is wisdom week or a deepening week for you guys. So I thought I would offer a talk on investigation, uh, the factor of investigation. It's the second talk on that factor. And this is also based, it's about the five aggregates of experience, sort of some of the components of our experience. I chose this topic because the Buddha was asked um, several times how to deepen practice. And this was his response. Sometimes he said, haven't I already taught you a whole bunch of stuff? Like, don't, why do you need to deepen your practice? Just do what I said before. (laughs) And then he said, okay, if you want to deepen your practice, then practice recognizing the impermanence of the aggregates. There's also a um, text in the Majjhima Nikaya that is specifically pointing at the deepening of practice, where he says... What is the development of attention that leads to mindfulness and alertness? There is the case where feelings are known to the practitioner as they arise, as they persist and subside. Perceptions are known. Thoughts are known as they arise, known as they persist, known as they subside. This is the development of attention that when it is pursued leads to mindfulness and alertness. Then the next um, paragraph is, what is the development of practice that leads to the ending of suffering? There is a case where a practitioner remains focused on arising and passing away with reference to the five clinging aggregates. Such is form, such is its arising, such is its passing away. Such is feeling tone, such is its origination, and it's passing away. Such is perception, its origination, and it's passing away. Such are formations, such is their origination, and they're passing away. Such is consciousness, 
This is its origination and its disappearance. This is the development that, when it is pursued, leads to the ending of suffering. So I thought, well, good. Here's the Buddha's advice uh, himself on how to deepen practice. This teaching about the five aggregates is also very fundamental. You could almost be called a Buddhist psychology in itself. It's a real root teaching. It was in the Buddha's first discourse, and it was also in his second discourse. And when he gave this teaching of the arising and passing away of the aggregates, that was when his five companions, or maybe it was only, maybe one of them got enlightened the night before, but the other four uh, received the teaching and were released from suffering when he gave this kind of instruction. I'm not going to say that I will match his transmission or anything like that, but I'm going to take a stab at it. Um, So I guess he had a feeling of that knowing that it could really work and knowing that it could really help us. Another time he said, there is nothing else besides these fleeting aggregates. Sometimes I teach it in a condensed way, Sometimes I teach it in an extensive way. And if an uninstructed person is not aware of this teaching, how can I really help them? So the teaching of the aggregates, I'm going to go through them each one by one, but the teaching is really to see that we can be free within the experience of living with these, or living or actually being constituted, made up of these streams or strands of experience. They're clingables, kind of. We can either get stuck to them, like lint on our socks in the dryer, or we can see them as they arise and pass away and live free of them and free with them, free within them, a little bit as... Todd was talking about desire this morning, that kind of in right relationship to them, then they're not a problem. They're called skandhas or khandhas. They're five strands braided together that make up our experience. Actually, the Buddha really said, we are our experience. There's nothing else. There is no outside vantage point. That's really partly the essence. Partly the essence. It is the essence of the teaching. Um, And that makes us fleeting. Um, That makes us susceptible to arising and passing away, both as what we think of as people and all of our mind states and experiences. Each experience has these five aspects. Sometimes one will be much more dominant than the others, and you'll experience it predominantly, but you can also look at, um, move through the day and start looking at some of the different strands. These components, they function together as a unit. They kind of arise together, so it's not uh, like we're going to get rid of any of them, such as our thinking. Um, I think we've noticed that we're not getting rid of the mind, even if we're trying to focus a lot on our physical body as a rooting place of attention. So it's not to get rid of them, but to understand their real nature. And I realize as I'm offering this that it can be a little bit of a difficult or gnarly kind of teaching, and um, I hope that if it doesn't really speak to you that we all feel like we're just 
here together in this room and you can just listen to me and know that I have good intentions and ignore um, whatever doesn't make sense to you like that. Um, That all talks, basically, I feel like I have to have that sense that it's going to be okay um, at the end. I I will survive, you will survive. (laughs) Some of the teachings are a little bit gnarly, and I think it's okay sometimes for there to be uh, something that kind of you know takes a while to absorb or that we don't relate to at this point in our practice or feels alienating or anything like that so um, I hope that doesn't happen uh, tonight but also if there's a certain piece of what I say that feels sparkly or alive to you then just have that be kind of the um, where your mind and this teaching meet for the evening and the rest can just wash away so form is the body. Um, I'm going through them one by one. Uh, basically, and most kind of existentially, it is our body. We could say it's the part of any experience that feels solid. Lee Brasington calls it the hardware. Say our body, like the earth, is a foundation for the other four aggregates that are sort of occurring in the mind. The Buddha one time was talking about it and he said, it's form and it can be deformed. And they said, deformed by what? And he said, by heat or by mosquitoes. (laughs) 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 He went on also and said, um, (laughs) went through each sense store and said that there are also forms that we can see with our eye. So say like this bell here has a shape and a color that we can see very directly and basically. It's almost like the first thing that arises when there's contact at any of the sense stores. So here you see this kind of brownness and semi-roundness. That's one aspect of it. Then the other aspects come up with whether or not you think it's pleasant. Knowing that it's a bell and not a sink or a garbage can or a spittoon or other things... Um, remembering that it rings, and maybe even having pleasure in the memory. Say, like, when I was examining it myself today, I thought, I don't, I'm not in love with the form of this thing, but I do like the things that it can do. I like the sound more than I like how it looks. So those are, that's kind of an example of experiencing something through uh, the various aggregates. But the form is just the basic color and shape here. The sound is the sheer sound of, a, say, a bird uh, when we hear it so sweetly arising and passing away in space. And some of you and some of us like practicing with sound because it does give you access, in a sense, to that pure sense of contact. So the body is impermanent. We know that. but we don't necessarily feel that or we don't want that. Um, We can go at that intellectually, that the body is constantly changing just from the outer sense of how we know we've been a baby and now we're adults, at least outwardly appearing as adults. Um, But also, in this practice, we've been going deeper and recognizing the direct experience in the body as being impermanent and even beyond 
simply being impermanent, also sometimes not having a shape or existing in ways that are not confined to our ideas about what the body is. So we feel warmth or we feel tingling when our foot touches the ground, the direct experience of the body, where the impermanence is somewhat accessible or recognizable, that there's just these experiences coming and going. We're training ourselves in recognizing uh, the nature of the body through this um, very specific form of attention. And we've talked quite a bit about this level of our practice, so I'm not going to go into it super, super extensively here. But when the Buddha compared our bodies to foam on a river, and maybe you've seen those balls of foam or at the ocean when the foam kind of can really get quite big and tall, but is yet kind of insubstantial. That's a recognition of the nature of our body uh, from the experiential point of view and also from the, even from the scientific point of view. The Buddha said it's actually good if you're attached to your body because um, it's easy to dismantle the attachment because the impermanence of the body is quite easy to see. Um, So we're lucky if we're really body-attached people. (laughs) If you're attached to your mind, it's more difficult, he said. (laughs) Because the mind is what sort of deludedly thinks about things being permanent. Before we leave behind this first um, aggregate, the form aggregate, I want to say that um, in our practice of the first foundation of mindfulness or seeing the body or seeing forms or hearing just sounds, tasting just the flavor, um, my Burmese teacher, Sayada Upandita, talked about having mindfulness arrive right upon that experience quickly before the rest all the ideation and the pushing and pulling, liking, disliking and stuff, where you really register the, that physical event right at the time that it's happening as a very um, empowering way of practicing. If you're not aware at that time, then a big train of other stuff happens, but uh, having mindfulness arise like that can sometimes allow us to feel a, a physical experience like one step all the way through its uh, sequence. And as we begin to observe in that way, then uh, wisdom insights can begin to arise. The second aggregate or uh, pile of fuel for craving that you can either set on fire or not is the feeling tone. That with any experience of a form, there's very often a kind of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral aspect right within that experience. Um, and it's quite individual and it's also changing, but sometimes that feeling tone is very prominent and sometimes it's not so prominent. And I think this is, it's kind of like a, what do you call it, a proto, like not really well-formed emotional aspect that um, brings a kind of vibrancy into our experience. It's sort of a gateway to relationship and the heart uh, through Vedana or feeling. 
I think the confusion that, the slight confusion linguistically that we have between feeling tone and our feelings is not wrong. That there's actually a kind of continuity of pleasant and pleasant emotion and pleasingness um, in our feeling life. So this is not something that we're seeking to eradicate through our meditation practice. We're seeking to live uh, within this world of changing uh, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral experiences with balance and with skill. Marie is going to speak uh, more extensively on feeling tone tomorrow night, right? Thursday. Thursday. So I will also not dwell so extensively on this, except to say that... um, Once I was teaching at Wellesley College and I was off in my high faith theories about the Dharma and stuff like that and the great Cambodian master Mahagosananda happened to be visiting and he agreed to sit and listen to me teach which was also kind of (laughs) nerve-wracking. And somewhere in the middle of whatever I was talking about he grabbed the ball and started saying, no, no, no. He said... Feeling is the eater. Feeling is the eater. This is the only teaching that anyone ever needs to know for liberation. It's like we are slaves to our feelings. We only want pleasant feeling. We just get rid of everything we dislike. And then we're running back and forth and we're tottering and swaying. And, you know, the minute we have something pleasant, we try to grab onto it. The minute we don't like something, we shrink away from it. And that's how we get so exhausted. Um... So it's an important teaching for liberation, and it's very often taught as one of the links in the chain of dependent origination that it's very easy to be freed with if we begin to try to practice even just the impermanence of feeling or watch the arising and passing away of easy and difficult um, and see how we react and respond and how often very you know you may wish to leave the retreat when your feeling becomes too unpleasant or too boring. Um, or you may wish to write a, write a note to the managers. <laughs> Dear managers, could you please remind our beloved teachers not to chat in the hall in our dorm? <laughs> this was came from this retreat. And we were reminded, we were so reminded, yes. We try, sorry, you all. <laughs> it's only intermittent, but it is recurrent. Meta. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> we too can be the object of such um, causing we really don't want to cause you problems but we're, that's inevitable I think <laughs> today while I was writing this talk Trudy brought me a piece of chocolate and I ate it it was very delicious in the moment and then a little bit later the feeling tone became unpleasant when my teeth were covered with that kind of sugary feeling and I had to then brush them and since I was in the space of noticing the arising and passing away of pleasant unpleasant and neutral it was like there was a kind of thread of being able to be aware of that change a different uh, relationship there's a way that when we are aware in this balanced way that um, our equilibrium is enhanced we're not the slaves running back and forth but that kind of brings it to a point of neutrality and ease with these things. So now the aggregate of perception. Um, This, I think, to me, it seems that this is where um, some of our experiencing begins to be problematic. 
And it seems quite clear in the Buddha's teachings that there's something about our cognitive overlay on the world that makes difficulties for us, that the labeling and the separation and some of the intellectualizing and theorizing and creating, creating kind of inner strongholds in the mind based on labels is uh, part of the origin of difficulty. Um, it's not an inevitable thing, but if we're not aware of perception or know the nature of perceptions, um, we can get really led astray by them. And we can also see this in the world, like the way that people perceive each other um, based on appearance or customs or habits, like how we will then uh, have what's called prejudice, like we experience a bunch of received ideas about someone else without experiencing them as a person. So to be able to understand how perception and labeling function and operate um, and begin to be able to dismantle some of them, or even, say, even see the form on the other side of the perception, like see that human face um, before you see an immigrant, or whatever those uh, bad labels might be. Very, very juicy place to work. So the example I gave about form in sound, you know, we hear the chirp of a bird, and we actually hear the sound of it, um, that touching on it as form. But we hear the sweetness of the sound, and you can almost feel your mind clinging and following after it and wishing that the bird would chirp again. Um, That's kind of the feeling tone piece. And then labeling it as a bird is the perception piece, saying you know that it's a bird. And you see these aggregates kind of do arise together. We're not trying to do psychic surgery, as Trudy said, and get rid of the part of us that recognizes that that's a bird. It's actually a very important part of our mind that helps us a lot in our life. Um, You know, we agree to drive on one side of the road and not the other side of the road. And when we see a red light, we perceive that this is the time to stop the car or to not cross the street. Um, There are conventions about, say, what marriages, what kind of commitments we bind ourselves to. And unfortunately, it can mean different things to different people, as we learn sometimes to our chagrin. Um. (laughs) So we name and we label, and it's necessary, and it's part of our experience. Um, I'm sure you all know that. Um, But there's a great diversity in the implications and the sort of the feeling tones around labels also. And sometimes they're very helpful, sometimes they're unhelpful. But they're always kind of partial. They're like handles that we use for experience even to agree with one another. Now say, sometimes when we recognize some internal feeling that we're having, like, oh, you know what? I'm angry. I'm really upset right now. It's so useful and important and soothing just to be able to give a name to something or to have a kind of cognitive understanding of how the practice works so they can be really beneficial. But a cognitive understanding of how the practice works is really different from eating the cake itself and doing the practice itself. I remember on my first retreat how I thought, wow, these books were really talking about this, about this experience, like I can really be in my experience. Whoever gave me that permission before in my life, it was just a wonderful discovery of being able to kind of be in my own being. And 
that's where the practice occurs, not in our ideations about it. So we can see that sometimes our perception of how we should be, our perception of what it is to be happy, can actually cause us a lot of problems and a lot of unhappiness, um, strangely, in a strange reversal. So we have to begin to see these perceptions as being impermanent and also to recognize that they are events within our consciousness, within our experience. Because there's something in the labeling that seems to split out an object from experience. That's why I'm calling, saying that it's kind of problematic. Thich Nhat Hanh says that in Chinese writing uh, ideograms, the upper part of the character that means perception uh, means mark or sign or appearance. And the lower part of the character means spirit or mind. So perceptions are always kind of like a mark or like a tick, but they occur within the mind and we're not really seeing that. He goes on and says, when we perceive the moon, the moon is us because it's inside our perception. When we smile at a friend, the friend is also us because she's inside our perception. Our consciousness is within the object. The idea that our consciousness is outside of the flower must be removed. So if we actually look at each other or look at this room, we can actually be aware that um, this room is existing in our consciousness, right? We can see that we're knowing all the faces either up here or out there. And how beautiful is that to say that we actually all exist in one another's minds? It's pretty boggling, beautiful. The Buddha compared perceptions to a mirage because they make something feel solid and real in the mind that isn't really solid and real the way a shimmering lake of water might appear on a pavement as if it were water, but it's actually just a composite of uh, some perceived uh, reflection of heat and gas. So one of the ways to practice with this is to start to recognize some of the interrelationship of form and perception and see some of the qualities there. So there's a white thing that's kind of round and soft, And it's a roll of toilet paper that gets smaller and smaller as the day goes by. (laughs) Or when you see the bird, I saw a bird flying across the path, and I saw that the bird itself was moving and moving its wings and changing position and impermanence. But my idea of a sparrow wasn't actually moving. There was a label uh, for the bird. But then as I walked on down the path, somehow that perception of bird that seemed to persist in the mind kind of disappeared and my mind filled up my that aspect of my mind filled up with other perceptions and experiences like the place to put the shoes and stuff. It's very natural. Um, so just to see the consciousness within perception, very important. So I'll end this segment of it with a bodhicitta prayer from the Tibetan tradition. Ho, mesmerized by the sheer variety of perceptions, like the illusory reflection of the moon in water. Being wander, beings wander endlessly in vicious circles so that they may be at ease in the luminous awareness of their own minds. I practice with a boundless heart.
So if we can hold our perceptions as partial and within a space of non-clinging, they can do their job and we're not uh, insisting that they be right. We know sometimes they may change. I remember when I was a kid and I went up to a lady in the dime store that I thought was my mom and I pulled on her blue skirt, which was the same color as my mom's blue skirt, and I asked her to buy me a turtle. And she looked down at me and it was like, oh my God, you're not my mommy. (laughs) A terrible moment. (laughs) Perception can be unreliable. So the next... Um, arena here is volitions, impulses, thoughts, ideas, emotions. Really, a kind of we're entering now into the fully mental realm uh, of experience. So how we, it's, this is kind of like, often it's just called volitional formations. And this is speaking a little bit to how we engage with our experience and how we're relating. There's a quality of moving towards something or a kind of a charged quality moving toward or away from something. This is a place, as John was saying last night, where karma can be born or can be released, can be freed, can be re-perpetuated in endless cycles of reacting to our internal experience or can be open to from the more deep place of consciousness, awareness, and allowed to be there. And this place of working with volition and impulses is a really important place for us also to be able to be freed. So I have a friend uh, in one of the regional sanghas that I teach with, and she has a disability that makes her uh, have a lot of pain and exhaustion if she overdoes or overmoves, if she gets too engaged in life. She has to spend a lot of time being really quiet. And a lot of her practice is working with how much can she engage with safely without having to pay for it or um, when does she, you know? When should she make contact? When does fear uh, of getting overtired block her from being able to connect? And when does excitement uh, bring her beyond the realm where she really should be? And it's not just that she has this uh, disability. I think we're all kind of like that. How we can get strung out and spun out in desires um, or contracted in fears and afraid to connect. So how are we relating to kind of our internal experience? The Buddha compared volitional formations to a plantain stem or a banana stem because it's coreless and hollow. And I would say the main image for recognizing that is that we really feel that like there's someone in here somewhere, you know, that there's a someone inside us, there's a someone in our memories. Uh, Rather than saying that memories are part of our experiencing and... um, one aspect of maybe what we are, but they may not be really who we are. Or uh, thoughts and beliefs that come into our mind, stories about success or failure, when we latch onto those and feel defined by those and impute a self into those feelings, it makes our life so much more difficult. Um, If we feel that we're like, must succeed all the time, really is it based on what? Or if there's anger, a sense of anger or an angry story or something like that in our mind, thinking that because I have anger in my mind and I'm an angry person, angry people are bad people, therefore I'm a bad person. This is actually almost a universal experience for us to see that this happens and to start to not believe that it's true you know, for all time about ourselves. 
Can we let our internal experiences, our volitions, our thoughts, our memories come and go? Come and go and stay grounded in awareness at the door of the mind, of our internal experience. The reason why this is the second to last aggregate is because it's actually subtle and harder to discern than the previous ones. It's harder to see the impermanence and non-self in that. But it's a very valuable practice. Ajahn Sumedho said, people become conditioned to a meditation technique. It's 8.15, time to do my breath awareness. And they're not aware. They've just been on the phone and their mother told them that their father ran away with his secretary and the electricity bills are unpaid. Then they say, I couldn't meditate last night. I was too upset. I couldn't concentrate on my breath. (laughs) But if you're meditating properly and something horrible happens, then you watch your mind's response to it. You watch what's going on in your mind. There's so much going on inside us that we have to accept and notice. So this sense of our self kind of being in there, um, it's a kind of a funny thing. Like we always want it to be bigger and better. Ajahn Sumedho goes on and says, why do people want to climb Mount Everest or be the first one to sit the longest in a tub of baked beans? (laughs) 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 There really is a Guinness record of sitting in a tub of baked beans. (laughs) We suffer because we're always in this position of being somebody. So, um, as the Buddha was inquiring of his disciples, his friends, those first four friends, can we have the thoughts and memories that we wish to have? Not necessarily. So many of us have come into the meetings and said, well, we thought we were done with this particular unpacking of past issues and difficulties, but here it is again, right? We always think we're going to be finished. Maybe we're not going to be finished. Um, So can we see these things as just coming and going and hold them in that space of awareness and care? Whether it feels like a gigantic drama internally, which is the case for some of us, and we wish that it could be different from that, or whether it feels a little boring, and we wish that we could be having a more cataclysmic purification and purgation, you know? (laughs) Can we just let things come and go? If we can, we can start to see kind of a different uh, pattern, a different approach. T.S. Eliot said, See now they vanish, the faces and places, and the self which as it could loved them. See now they vanish, those faces and places, with the self which as it could loved them to be renewed and transfigured in another pattern. So this self that we feel we are is actually also constantly changing, constantly renewed. We're not the child we were, and we've even forgotten some of the people who used to be important to us. Um, And yet we have a seemingly never-ending supply of new internal experiences. Um, I don't think we need to worry that the supply is going to end. Lastly, the most ethereal and maybe fascinating for some of us of the aggregate's consciousness. Every experience that we have occurs within awareness somehow or other. I remember practicing with Trudy's friend George in our in my Trudy's ex-husband George. I think they must have been married at the time. 
And I said I was really in a... <laughs> yes? <laughs> were you married at the time? Yes, I think you were. You were. And um, I said I had just had this really cloudy sitting. And he said, Ah, Mount Fuji surrounded by fog. And he said, Well, there was something that knew how cloudy it was, right? And I was like, Yeah. And he was like, Well, so that's... Stick with that. You did know the cloudiness. Don't get lost in the fogginess. Remain with the awareness, such as it was, even if you can't really quite find it. Something in there is knowing. Something in there is knowing all the time. It's been knowing maybe back into the womb, as Marie said. I don't remember those things, but some people do. So the Buddha's great discovery, actually, of dependent origination is that there's no consciousness without an object. Um, awareness can sometimes be aware of itself, but then it's kind of being its own object in a way. And the debates about consciousness, I think, have to do with its elusive quality. It arises at each sense door. Like, actually, if you're not paying attention, you might not see someone passing through the room. If I'm really staring at this thing and something goes on in the back of the room, maybe somebody leaves the hall... I don't see that who it was that actually left. I might hear the sound and then look and I just see the door closing. So there has to actually be a little bit of a directed attention for us, this consciousness, to arise. But sometimes it's considered to be something like the field in which our experience comes and goes. Um, and I think that those are actually two sides of the same thing, that such a sensitive and ephemeral thing as our knowing is affected by the slightest whisper of an opinion or a perception that we might have about it. But I think we all can know that we're knowing. We all can look into ourselves and recognize that we're knowing, we're conscious beings. Some of you may be less conscious at this point in the talk, but um. <laughs> but anyway, there's something in there. Um, and this consciousness is compared to a magician's trick because somehow it makes everything else feel and seem real. It's like it gives it a field or a place to be. There's sometimes when we practice uh, being aware of consciousness or being aware of awareness a lot, it can start to seem that all experience is actually made of consciousness, and the edges of perceptions and objects seem to blur or merge into a kind of luminosity. And we start to say, yeah, you know, really, everything does occur in consciousness. There's all these fabrications, and they arise and dissolve, and the consciousness registers them all. This is what some people call the Buddha mind. So Garchan Rinpoche says, uh, if we recognize emotions and suffering as they arise, this mindful awareness is the Buddha. The Buddha abides in the mind stream of all sentient beings. Don't get sucked into the thoughts, but see the awareness that recognizes them. Obscuration and difficulty come from grasping at the truth of your thinking. But when awareness holds its own with stability, then emotions and pleasure and suffering will fade, and our mind will become very clear. You will see that things lack inherent existence and are like a dream. So that's another suggestion for practicing with consciousness or awareness that um, you can kind of try to put your awareness in charge of your experience or keep it central. It's really what we're practicing with the mindfulness. Um, and start to see that um, 
it's there for you through all experiences. It can be kind of a neutral point. It's not been made better or it's not been ruined by any of the great or horrible things that have happened to it. It just, there's a part of us that just does know and register and doesn't hang on within itself. Like it just lets the next thing come and it's known. It's like something, what is it being written on? We don't know. I don't think you can really find that. Uh, there's not a substrate that uh, is holding everything, but something is knowing. This is how things are, too, arising and passing away from emptiness to emptiness. Upasika Ki says that when you place your awareness in charge in this way and start to watch everything coming and going like that, there's a sense of emptiness and experience, and it becomes friendly. It's not the scary kind of emptiness. True emptiness on the inner level is something really worthwhile to know, she says. True emptiness on the inner level is something really worthwhile to know. This consciousness that doesn't really have an agenda for what it's willing to receive. St. John of the Cross said, I came into the unknown and stayed there, not knowing, knowing beyond all science. I didn't know the door, but when I found the way, not knowing where I was, I learned vast things, but what I know I cannot say, for I remained unknowing, rising beyond all science. Meaning science conditioned knowing or thinking. We can feel that in releasing ourselves into the stream of experience, kind of releasing ourselves without holding back. T.S. Eliot said, the music heard so deeply that it isn't heard at all, but you are the music while the music lasts. The music heard so deeply that it's not heard at all, but you are the music while the music lasts. So to conclude a little bit with a little bit of practical application here, you can play with these awarenesses of the aggregates Say, if you're eating some soup in the dining hall, sensing the warmth and softness of that perfectly cooked noodle or potato, that's the form or the matter of it. And you maybe have pleasure in contacting the fragrance or the taste of that soup. But you're always recognizing this is a bowl of noodles that you're connecting with here. You can look at your orientation to the bowl, your attention to the food, your desire to take another bite. Or watching uh, when you approach the red doors back there, when you get close to the door, suddenly the volition will arise to raise up your hand and push through. You don't just walk up to the door and bang into it because you remember that the door is there, you know this. There's a kind of automatic functioning there that does not necessarily have to be so personal. The other way of practicing, too, is to recognize and release this self that we've built, the self that we've made. I am my body. This body belongs to me. I'm in my body. This body is mine. I'm the one who feels and suffers and enjoys. These feelings are happening in me, or I'm the owner of them, or I'm in them. The suffering is in me. 
begin to relax and see that the in me part might be extra or the I and me and mine part is extra. You can, you're having the experience already. So you can loosen the clinging and grasping and selfing that is built on top of these experiences. I'm the one who names. I'm the one who perceives. I'm the one who discerns. I'm the thinker. Or I'm the one who does everything. I do everything for you. and Wash your socks. <laughs> I'm the one who has opinions and feelings. I'm the one who creates and imagines. What if creating and imagining are happening in a space of greater freedom? And lastly, I'm the one who knows. Or this knowing is in me, or I am in this knowing. It's beyond all that. Our experience is really beyond all that. It's softer than that and more open than that. And that's the experience that we're actually living. If we touch on it with this awakened, open mind and heart. When we can let these streams arise in their own way and pass in their own way, we enter a kind of different, transfigured world where it might seem that each snowflake is falling in its own place. We either see it or we don't see it, but that doesn't really matter. There's nothing to fix or nothing to do about how our experience arises. It's perfect already as it is. Perfect already as it is. Nothing that we need to do, fix, correct. Shakespeare said, this is the end of the talk, these cloud-capped towers, these gorgeous palaces, the solemn temples and the great globe itself. Yes, all that we inherit shall dissolve, and like this insubstantial pageant fading, leaving not a speck behind. We are such stuff as dreams are made on, and our little life is rounded with a sleep. We are such stuff as dreams are made on, and our little life is rounded with a sleep. Well, thank you for your attention plowing through the five aggregates. Let's have a moment of sitting quietly. May the truth of our existence be known and felt and experienced by each one of us. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.